We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. We're talking about like a, I mean, huge fraction of the government of government spending. I tried to estimate it once, and I forget exactly. I have it. I have it in a blog post here. I can. I can just call up these blog posts. My rough back of the envelope calculation suggests that it's almost a trillion dollars. Wow. That we spend on nonprofits. Eight hundred fifty billion dollars was when I just eight hundred fifty billion. He's he's a know nothing guy who has absolutely no you know understanding of what these problems are actually like and is not bothered and doesn't care and that hasn't bothered to talk to anyone who has a real understanding all he's doing is he's he's just you know he's just gpting it right i i keep coming back to that that analogy but what he's he's saying the thing that he thinks the audience wants to hear you know so that he can minimize his like republican based loss function and that's all he's doing talking about stuff that would actually have a real purpose and point other than getting him attention is not on his radar is not in his objective function. His objective function is attention for himself. And that is his only objective function. And thus, this is why I think he is a bad politician and that we should ignore him. Welcome to Econ 102, where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news, technology, business, and beyond through the lens of economics. Let's jump right in. Hey everyone, just a heads up. We'll be releasing Econ 102 episodes on Wednesdays instead of Tuesdays from now on, except of course, when we record emergency podcasts. Thanks as always for listening to the show. And now back to this week's episode. Hey, Noah. Hey, how's it going? It's, uh, it's going great. Uh, happy, uh, happy Thanksgiving. Excited, happy Thanksgiving. Uh, excited to chat with you. Grateful that we, uh, we do the show together. Yes, it's been fun, you know, thanks for convincing me to do it. Yeah. And uh, we've gotten some comments from uh, listeners over the time that my my facial hair is too uh, it changes too much. Sometimes it's uh, it's all gone, and sometimes it's uh, it's a bit excessive. Yeah, it's hard to just it's hard to know who you are, you know, because facial <laughs> hair is what makes a person them. Yeah, exactly. Well, over the next few weeks, I'll be reflecting, and I'll come to conviction uh, go, going forward. Why don't we do Q and A? Why don't we Why don't we let audience? You know, now that we have a little bit of an audience, why don't we yeah. let the audience? send us questions, you know, each yes. week and we can answer a couple of questions. Yeah, that, that's a great idea. We will, uh, we will hundred percent do that. Do reply in the comments if you have questions for us and we'll do another formal call for questions. That would be a fun, uh, mailbag end of year episode. We should also do an episode where I interview you instead. Yeah. We should definitely good. do a reverse episode. Yeah, that, 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 that'd be good. Speaking of conviction, I, I thought we'd start this episode by talking about your most recent piece on politically motivated science or how politics has penetrated academia. Uh, why don't you unpack your, your argument in that piece? Well, it's, you know, it's very hard to know how much this has happened. It's just a thing I see happening occasionally, uh, you know, more and more. The, the basic idea is that there's always been a few people who claim that instead of, you know, sort of objectivity, a search for truth, blah, 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 that academia should be engaged in kind of, you know, politically activist projects, trying to, you know, improve the world through various, you know, forms of activism that have no separation from research. And there's been, you know, a bunch of people who argue this. 
this was never really a majority viewpoint. I think even today it would be a minority viewpoint, but I, I think that over the last uh, 10 to 15 years, that has become a much more prevalent viewpoint in some parts of academia, especially the humanities, but especially the non-econ social sciences. So we're talking about sociology, anthropology, um, and then, you know, some other things like um, geography and blah, blah, and, and, and the history profession, you know. So, so history isn't really a science, but, but you're, you know, there's this idea that you should try to find the facts and determine what actually happened. Uh, but then the politicized version of that would be instead you're trying to, you know, endorse a certain narrative. You're sort of trying to, you know, use a, an interpretation of the facts to push a certain narrative. I'm using kind of non-complementary terms for this that the people who actually push this point of view would not use, right? Because I don't like this idea. So I'm using terms for it that I think do encapsulate it fairly well, but that these people would wince at because, you know, it's it's very important that people get to express things in their own terms. But I think that's what it really comes down to. So basically, the politicization of science means that research should be used for activist purposes and that research should be written in a way so as to further certain activist goals. I think this is a very bad idea. I think we have plenty of space for activism in our society. And that um, essentially when you politicize science, you're, you're approaching the world with one hand tied behind your back. Because if you can't figure out, if you don't figure out how the world actually works, you know, if, you, if you're so busy spinning facts to promote a certain narrative that you have a poor understanding of the way the world actually works, your ability to change that world will be concomitantly decreased. You know, you'll, you'll be trying to change things that you don't understand. And when you try to change things that you don't understand, you will make mistakes. You will use improper levers of control and you will, uh, you know, et cetera. And this is, this is very different than the argument that if you politicize science, people will lose trust and lose faith in science. Um, because I think that that is an interesting argument and I'm not sure where I stand on that. I think uh, we could talk about that in a bit, but um, I think the, the, more, the biggest danger is that by losing touch with the facts, you decrease your ability to change the facts. Yeah. And it, it's it's not just academia that's experienced this, right? It's also journalism. Uh, there's a guy, Wesley Lowry, called for this idea that we need to have moral clarity in journalism and, and kind of, you know, move away from this, not, not just him, a bunch of people, move away from this detached, objective uh, sort of analysis of what's happening, partially because that's impossible. You know, people, everyone's got their own biases. Uh, so it sort of uses that argument, but also says, hey, we should be advocating for a better world, given that, that the stakes are, are so high. I, I just say this to say it's, it's not just academia that's experienced this incre increased politicization um, in a particular way. It's a it's a it's a number of our institutions uh, over the over the past you know few years, uh, particularly or, or, or around the Trump uh, phenomenon that just ramped up the politicization all at once. And part of it was inspired by by the threat of or fear of Trump. Part of it was perhaps because social media just made it so much easier to, to do or, or just made the fights so so aggressive that if people, institutions felt the need to do it. But but it's interesting how, how it happened kind of a, across the board. Yeah, yeah, it is. Have, um, I mean, how much do you think of yourself as a journalist? Like, you know, <laughs> how, how much do you feel that you're in that world? I, I don't think of myself as a, as, a, as a journalist, but I do think of myself as someone who's trying to describe, uh, you know, describe things ob objectively, um, or I guess to the extent that I have a 
a sort of agenda. It's a, you know, it's a pro tech, it, it's a techno optimist uh, agenda. So in, on issues surrounding the, those topics, I would, I would say I'm fairly, uh, you know, my biases are out there cl cl clear to see, but I'm, I'm still trying to describe things accurately. And I, I, I don't, I don't know if you'd call yourself a journalist, but I, I see you as trying to describe things as they're actually happening. Um, you know, even if they go against what you wish were happening. Right. Well, you know, interestingly, I don't describe myself as a journalist. I describe myself as a, uh, a pundit or opinion writer or, you know, um, yeah, editorial columnist, whatever you want to say. Uh, I, I am in a, a field where basically opinion is necessary. You know, I have to say what I think. And so I'm a little weird in that I try to be a little more analytical and objective than I think a lot of people do. Although I, I think that there's a, a general movement in this direction. You see more people doing what I, something like what I'm doing. Um, you know, I, I could name you another, a number of other, you know, Substack sort of pundits who try to do the same thing. Um, like uh, Brian Potter, for example, whom we should have on the show because that's my favorite Substack. Yeah. But um, my favorite Substack, by the way, is not mine. It's it's a guy, a guy named Brian Potter. But um, so uh, yeah, it's uh, I, I I try to to analyze the the situation as best I can while also being in a field where that's not necessarily the goal. You know, that's like opinion writers are supposed to have opinions. And so I think that journalists who who inject you know opinions into their journalism are doing a, a sort of the opposite, you know, it's like you were tasked with finding the facts, but, um, you know, instead you, you editorialized. And I think that there's this part of this is because of the traditionally, there was no real difference in, in roles between these people. It was just, you know, uh, you had reporters who would report on things and then, um, you know, some occasionally they'd be able to cut loose and say whatever they felt. And that was an editorial uh, or an op-ed. Right. And so that was, uh, or an editorial. And so, I think we're, we're sort of learning the roles for journalists and, and opinion writers. Cause I think, you know, you do have opinion isn't really important in society. You need opinions uh, and then you can't do without them, but you also need fact finding. And, and I think that in journalism, we're just working out who does which division of labor uh, within that. But I think that, um, you know, in academia, it's uh, the, the, the division we've had a lot longer to work that out and it's, it's a lot clearer as to you know who does what that you know research results are the kind of thing that anyone can use right if you find out that more public school spending equals better education for students which is a finding that is very common uh contrary to popular belief that is a very common finding that um that spending more on public schools actually makes kids learn better uh, but so you take that and you do with it what you will right you then, then the op-ed columnist and the, the, you know, whoever takes that and runs with it. Um, academics are experts. You know, if you have a, a, an economist who understands the technical details of how, you know, data is produced and how statistical estimators are defined and what they're estimating, what they're not and what the literature says and all these things that you have a, a, a reservoir of expertise in this person, right? When, when that person mixes activism with their assessment of the fact in ways, you know, even in ways that are, that are explicit and apparent, but, but is, you know, especially in ways that are just, you know, intuitive and natural and where they just mix the two, um, that, uh, means that that expertise is no longer conveying information to the world. Right. 
right? Because it's being passed through this filter of activism before you get to people who could actually put it to use. You're, you're creating, by having scientist academics, you know, I'm sorry, by having scientist activists, you have, um, you, you take away some of the agency from actual activists. Right. And, and we saw this in COVID, right? We, we saw um, sort of an association of doctors, I can't remember which one, say that, these are my words, not, not, not yours, because I'm not sure where, where you stand on this, but I, I think they said something along the lines of, it was, they, they cleared people to protest for, for Black Lives Matter, but they said that was okay, but they said it wasn't okay for people to go to their funeral, like the, the parents' funerals or what. Like, I, it was just so selective. Maybe that's a poor example, but there, there are numerous examples where people who were supposed to be non-politically motivated were politically motivated. That, that's a harder case because th that wasn't a case of people doing research that said this. You know, I didn't, no one was coming out with a paper, a research paper that said, like, you know, cost benefit of having people protest, blah, blah, blah. Right. I actually, I actually tried to do that in a Twitter thread. It was a bit silly, but, but I did try to do it. So I had a Twitter thread. I should go back and write a post where I revisit that thread. I was like cost benefit, you know, COVID cost benefit of, you know, the, the, the like cost in spreading COVID versus the, you know, possible benefits of preventing more police shootings, et cetera. Yeah. But I didn't take into account the possible um, rises in violent crime, which kind of swamp everything. Yeah. And so because of that, the analysis is it's, it's pretty useless and, and like, you know, but it was, it was fun. I guess the point was that um, nobody's coming out of a research paper saying this. Like the fact that you are a scientist as a job doesn't mean you should have no voice in politics, right? Um, you can you can be of the opinion that like this is a you know that these protests are a public health intervention. You can be you can have that opinion and you can say it, and you know like it's a free country. Like you're not like a, some special cast of of opinionless people just because you're a scientist. But you have to somehow not put it in your, in your papers. I think. Right. So I, I give a, I thought they were sort of lending a sense of medical credibility to it, but I, I'll hear, I'll, I'll move to a different example that it's kind of the opposite. Roland Fryer from Harvard came out with some research, I believe that suggested that when you defund the police, it leads to more crime. Um, and I, I also think he might've suggested that the um, sort of crime, dis the policing disparities aren't as bad as people think or sort of the, um, you know, and it basically he suggested some things that undercut kind of the, the Black Lives Matter narrative. And he was, that research was not seen very positively. And he was removed, I believe, from the university. Now he had some other scandal, which may or may not have been played up as a result of this. But uh, that, that's just another example of when there's... Oh, he, 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 he hooked up with his RA. No, that, was yes. a, that, was a, that was a Me Too situation. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and, and so I have, you know, I have opinions about that, uh, you know, whether like people should hook up with their RAs or not. Uh, professor at Harvard who publishes a lot of papers and is a pretty prestigious guy. Like, I think he was just, um, they, they cut funding to his lab or something like that because uh, it misused it or something like that. It was, um, I don't know if that was like specific retribution for him doing a certain kind of research. That was interesting because I, the place I expected you to go with that, I expected you to say, oh, well, he did this. This research showing that, um, you know, BLM concerns are overrated, but uh, then these other people did some research showing the opposite. And aren't these people all just politically motivated? I thought that was what you were going to say, but but no, it's about the. I, no, I think the the concerns over hooking up with your RA are are separate yeah. and different, and uh, and we can have a whole, you know, maybe someday I'll write a post about that. But I'm not really an expert on that yeah. topic, so it's yeah, like I hear you. that's a so that's a bit of a sidetrack. But um, so so recapping that. 
uh, he showed a thing that showed that conditional on being pulled over, like once you've been pulled over, black people and white people have about the same chance of being shot by cops on the road. Um, the difference is that black people are a lot more likely to be pulled over. And they're also a lot more likely to be pulled over when they don't have anything, gun, drugs, whatever, in the car. So usually when you basically when police like pull over like a car with a white driver, it's like you pretty much know that that person's got some shady stuff going on um, because, you know, they're probably just like all over the road. It's kind of obvious to tell, but then they 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 tend to pull over black drivers more indiscriminately. And there's lots of research about that. But once they pull them out, once they once they pull them over, there's no more there's no difference in likelihood of getting shot. So, so it's a, it's a much more nuanced finding than a lot of the headlines uh, used it as, right? It wasn't, it wasn't saying police are fair, right? It was saying that um, the, the problem is not necessarily how police interact with people. Like the, the racial disparity is not necessarily in how police interact with people once they're out of the, the car, the, the biggest racial disparity is in who gets pulled over in the first place. The, the, and so that was, you know, I, I, so I think a lot of the, the fault there lies with the media that ran with one side of that message or the other. Yeah. I think that really it's just a nuanced thing and people were not in the mood to be nuanced. They were really yelling pretty, pretty strongly about that. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. Let me zoom out and ask. You know, there's there's this famous trope. Michael Jordan once said, "Hey, Republicans buy sneakers too," which meant to exemplify the, "Hey, um, you know, I can't offend half the country." Um, and and I, academia, it seems, has gotten increasingly left over the past decade or or, or, or so. So so much so, it's like ninety percent or ninety five percent Democrat or so, some very high percentage. It was always probably marginally Democrat, but because talk about how that change happened and 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 what, why that ch change happened. Uh, it, it felt like there used to be more um, sort of uh, variety there. Right. So one big change that happened was uh, sort of the um, the rise of, of alternative careers in the private sector. So if you were in 1950, like, you know, and you were a nerd and you just wanted to like research some stuff, academia looked pretty great, right? That looked like a pretty great job. You get to have your own lab, you get to boss around a few RAs, you get to like do what you want on your own time and and, you know, have, have your own schedule and, and then, and I don't know, probably hook up with students because no one cared then. Um, and so, you know, that was like, that was, that was the life, man, back in the 1950s, 1960s. But then, uh, you know, you had this private sector boom and you had the tech industries where nerds can work, right? And, and not just nerds either. You had the professionalization, the rise of, of professions. You had the lawyer boom where humanities people can go you know, you could go make an upper middle class or upper class income where instead you'd be like this shabby humanities professor with like little patches on your jacket. Come on. Like, um, and so the, the, the alternatives in the private sector got really good. And who stayed? Who stayed in academia? Well, people who were just really, really incredibly academic minded. Also, people were very risk averse, right? Uh, in terms of their career. People who, for whom tenure was a big deal because you couldn't get tenure uh, you know, it turned out that even Google couldn't give you tenure. <laughs> and, and so, and anti-capitalist too, right? It's selected out like pro-capitalist people. Anti-capitalist. That's exactly right. Of the boomer generation, you know, if you were a, yeah, if you were like a, a lefty who wanted to do research, you didn't want to go work for the man doing research and you didn't, you know, so you would, uh, so you'd go there. And so, so you got this, this culture of, of very you know, sort of pro-government, uh, you know, anti-private sector kind of people. 
And then I think you had, you have a, you, there's a sort of cultural snowballing process where once you, once you get a culture, it often tends to reinforce itself because once you, once professors are a bunch of, of libs, they're going to hire a bunch of libs. Um, I mean, like you hire people who are sort of similar to yourself and it doesn't have to be hiring people based explicitly on political views. You know, we think of this, like checking the box. Did you write this thing on your statement? Blah, blah, blah. And that's, you know, that there is, there are people trying to do that now, but, but you don't need that for discrimination. You just talk to people, you get an idea of where they stand, you fly them out, you hang out with them, you look at their history. You can look, you know, now you can look at their social media posts and you get a very strong idea. So of, of who's like who, and even if you're not consciously conditioning on, um, you know, political views, you can be consciously conditioning on the kind of cultural resonance that ends up leading to certain political views. So like, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a lib, I get along with other libs and I hire people I get along with, not necessarily because they're libs. Right. Right. So that it just gets like that. And of course this can happen, you know, this happens at certain companies too. You have companies where like, um, you know, like at a, at like a defense tech company, you're not going to get a lot of libs there because, uh, you know, it's a defense tech company. And so, but it's just, it's just sort of there, there's little, a little nudge can really snowball. Yeah. And another thing that's changed about academia is we, the sort of flooding of administrators, right? Like a, a, a large percentage of all employees are, are, are administrators. And, and it feels like the administrification, which I just made up of, of American general, it just feels like there's so many, you know, some of the stuff that you guys talk about in the abundance movement about, uh, you know, everything bagel liberalism, this, or this idea that there's just too much bloat, too much, um, sort of red tape. Uh, that prevents, you know, sort of uh, everyone from achieving goals, even even liberal, even progressive goals. And and yet you also wrote a post recently, which we should touch on is, uh, you know, America needs a bigger and better bureaucracy. Right. Maybe, maybe you could start by touching on what, why we've had such administrative bloat in in academia or in, or in government. And, uh, you know, what, why did you write that post then, given that uh, we already have so much and it's not working? Well, we, we, so we actually have a lot fewer government workers, at least relative to the size of our economy or to the size of government spending or whatever you want to, we have a lot fewer government workers than we used to. We outsource things. So the thing is that when, when at universities didn't have all those administrators, you know, who's doing that job? Nobody, the job wasn't being done. And maybe that was a job that didn't need to be done. Yeah. Right. Maybe the reason nobody's doing it is because it didn't need to be done. It was a useless job. And so then they hired people to create this job and are now spending on money on something they didn't spend money on before. That's very different than the government in the government. We had people doing this job and then what we did was we outsourced and we, someone is still doing that job, but instead of someone in a government office, it's someone at a grifting nonprofit who is being funded by taxpayer dollars, but is not accountable to the taxpayer by any reasonable means. You know, so you, you have to understand the difference between like, um, you know, having bureaucrats doing a thing and having that thing still be done by non-bureaucrats. That's like, that's what happened in our government. And the reason we need a bureaucracy is we need to take back a lot of our functions from these, you know, middlemen who are, are really grifting a lot of, you know, whose, whose goal is just to increase the amount of money that goes to their own executives and their own employees. And, you know, they're just bilking the taxpayer. That's the grifting nonprofit sector. We need to just cut them off and bring back government workers in a, um, you know, in, in, in a government building, like, or, or because the alternative isn't to just not do these things at all. Right. You know, you can, you can pretend that you're going to like destroy the IRS, but you're not because that's where the government revenue comes from. But do and, they need um, like 87,000 employees or, or whatever? Yeah, 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 they do. Because like, 
Do you like doing your taxes? No. No, I don't either. I would like to have the government do some of that for me because that's low value work. That is not my core competence in life. And that's true of most people. Um, have you ever tried to call the IRS to like ask them a question while doing your taxes? Uh, I have not. Well, congratulations. You've lived a charmed life because if you <laughs> do have to do that, you're in hell. But you were in hell up until Biden funded the IRS. So then now they have a bunch of people on those, on those hotlines who are like, you know, walking you through this process. And now they're even starting to do some things where, where the government will actually just do your taxes for you. You don't have to worry about it, which is how it works in other countries, uh, some other countries. And then, um, and then, uh, wow, it's like now I can, instead of spending an hour learning to be a tax prep, you know, enthusiast amateur, in learning to be an H&R block worker, like taking two days out of my life to do this and just freaking out and having a desk full of papers and blah, 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 and worrying if I'm going to get audited. Blah, blah, blah. Someone, one of those 87,000 people in some government building somewhere is doing this for me. And that's great. Right? That's great. I want that. I don't want to have to be an H&R block guy or spend thousands of dollars on H&R block. <laughs> yeah. Right? I'd rather get done. And so, so, so it's a very different situation between universities and the government. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. Let's talk about the nonprofit sector. Some people call it the nonprofit industrial complex. What is this? Like, how did it get so big in the way that you alluded to? And how did so many government functions get outsourced to, to the nonprofit sector? And yeah, why is that? And how big is it? How, how much money are we talking about? We're talking about like a, I mean, huge fraction of the government of government spending. I tried to estimate it once and I forget exactly. I, I didn't think that's what we're talking about today. So I don't have that number off the top of my head, but then I have it. I have it in a blog post here. I can, I can just call up these blog posts. The really, the reason I write blog posts is to, um, is to sort of, uh, you know, have this, this compendium of information that I can then go, go, uh, search, um, about my rough back of the envelope calculation suggests that it's almost a trillion dollars. Wow. That we spent on nonprofits. $850 billion was when I just, $850 billion. And how, how do you think that money is divided up? Like, what are the nonprofits doing? Um, they do a startling array of things. For example, you have some nonprofits that do, um, uh, that do social services. So suppose you have some program where you want to, uh, you know, give rehab to addicts, right? We have all these addicts on the street. Like, maybe we should rehab these people so they're not addicts anymore. What are we going to do? Well, we could have a bunch of government workers come in. Like in those, you know, you look at all these movies from the seventies, right? And it's always like you walk into a government building and it's like this giant, like cubicle hell. And like, there's the caseworker with a bunch of papers stacked on a desk and the caseworker, it's some like nice old white lady with like horn rimmed glasses, occasionally a nice old black lady with horn rimmed glasses. And she tells you, you know, like, well, you have to fill out this form and whatever. And that was the government worker. And then we replace this with nonprofits, which are basically a bunch of like, you know, imagine the silliest leftist activist that you know who who are going to take a lot of this money and pay themselves off so they can, you know, go do whatever leftists do for fun. And wh why did that replacement happen? H how did it go from government to nonprofit? A bunch of, uh, you know, sort of special interest groups lobbied the Democratic Party to um, to to get a, a say in what happened. Right. There was there was pressure at the at the electoral level. So there's this thing called clientelism, a uh, long word, but it's a. Uh, a political science thing where essentially you pay people to vote for you and to work, you know, to, to help, to, to help your campaign get elected, you pay people directly. And so usually we think this shouldn't be possible, right? At, at the, 
at the government, at the, at the, you know, whole na national level, it's not very possible. You know, you'll notice that like Biden, when he spends a bunch of money on solar power, a lot of that's going to red states. A lot of that is going to people who didn't vote for Biden. And that's good, right? We want that because we don't want politicians to be able to just pay off the people who voted for them and who marched for them and who knocked doors for them, right? But then when you get down to local politics, it's a lot more granular. And so it's a lot more possible to do clientelism, which is why local politics is always much more corrupt than national politics, because you can actually see who marched, who knocked doors for you and voted for you and worked for you. And so you had all these, um, and so San Francisco is sort of the, the pioneer country of this and the epicenter of this. You had all these, these sort of groups who would knock doors for politicians who would, you know, get a certain community to vote for people. So like you could, you could, by buying off an activist group, you could actually buy off a chunk of votes, you know, and, uh, and that has to do with San Francisco's uniquely sort of divided, uh, balkanized society. Uh, and so we could do a whole episode on that. I did write a piece on that when I was, uh, you know, first starting my blog called, uh, nobody says hi in San Francisco. So there, there's a really good essay you can read about when they first tried to do this. Um, it's called Mau Mauing the Flack Catchers. It's by a guy named Tom Wolf. And it's just the, the hilarity of watching these nonprofits compete for government funding, government contracts and for, for social services, for basically providing jobs for poor people. So at that point, the, it was, it was government sort of make work jobs that they were providing right. to people like in the, in the seventies. And, um, yeah, so, so you had all these absolutely ridiculous groups claiming to represent these communities. You couldn't, and then the government workers completely incapable of telling how many votes you could actually bring to the table, but trying to make that calculation. So that's sort of what happened on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, you had R Ronald Reagan and the people coming in saying, let's drown the government in a bathtub, not understanding what that meant. So, so basically, they think if you cut out the, the lady with the horn room glasses and the cubicle hell, you get rid of that, and then you just have checks. Here's a nice little check, and we write the check, push it out the door, and it's gone. They think that's a smaller government. It's not. It just means that your government is being done out of sight where there's no accountability by people who have less of a, you know, less, less, you know, competent, whatever, who just want to grift you. And uh, this is a negative stereotype. There's some nonprofits who probably do good work somewhere, but I don't care because like so much of it is the grift that I don't care. And so, so you're pushing money out the door. And so the Reaganites thought this was a great idea. This is a great way to reform the government. So you have this devil's bargain between the Democrats who wanted to, you know, like give more power to community groups. And then you had activists and, and special interests who would vote for them at the local level. And then you had, and the Republicans who at the national level, state level, whatever, any level, just wanted to like cut the number of government employees that are directly employed by the government. So that they, they, there was this sort of this horrible compromise on let's just write checks to the nonprofits. And of course we got grifted. And what's the steel man for why, um, the nonprofits serve a purpose outside of for-profits and government? Like should just everything be segmented to for-profit or government or what's, what is the actual role or in an ideal society of nonprofits that what can they achieve that government or for-profit can't achieve? Well, I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's a number of, of arguments. There's the idea that government employees don't necessarily consider, you know, the interests of minority groups. So if you just have, um, so, uh, for example, suppose you have, you have San Francisco, suppose you have, um, uh, you know, the, the gay community in 70s San Francisco, right? Your government workers behind a desk aren't necessarily going to take into account the special needs of the gay community in that case. Because it's legal for government to discriminate, basically? Well, or yeah, or because of just representation issues, like you don't have enough gay people in government, or because, like, you know, they just... Um, Maybe you want to upweight 
the the interests of of minority groups. So you know, there's this idea that uh, democracy should be about um, you know majority rule with minority rights is like the thing they teach you in like fifth grade, right? And so there's this idea that um, when you when you actually try to implement that, it becomes a lot harder to to draw that line. Um, there's this idea that maybe we want to take special care to protect the gay people and give the gay people what they need in 1975 or whatever, um, because they, um, you know, at that time, gays were pretty discriminated against. And, uh, you know, is it, is it fair to say that, you know, Wes Yang talks about how we have an activist class that's not just, uh, it, like, that, that's actually like an economic structure where there are many people who are incentivized for the culture war to exist. Otherwise, they don't have a job. <laughs> yes, he's, he's, I mean, he's right. He's right. Those are the people in the in the nonprofits, because the thing is that you could have a real situation, right? Remember, that was a steel man. You could have a real situation where a, a minority group needs that special, you know, special control that, that they get from having their own organization that the government works with. Right. But then the point is that if nonprofits just want a bunch of money, they, it's in their economic, and I'm not saying they just want a bunch of money. Obviously, they think they're doing good for the world, too. No one thinks like, ah, I'm just a cynical grifter. No one thinks that, right? Yeah. You can tell yourself a story about why you're doing good for the world, and most people believe their own story. And so, um, but, the, the, but the thing is that there becomes an economic incentive to create those stories. There becomes an economic incentive to create these, like, you know, stories of official discrimination and official exclusion, you know, so severe or so baked in or whatever that you, you know, that you'll essentially always have a need for the, you know, nonprofits to get more and more money. And so in other words, by, by Wes is absolutely right in the sense that creating stories of group exclusion, it does help nonprofits get more money from the government. Yeah. And there's an economic incentive to create these stories. And so nonprofits, that's part of the nonprofit industrial complex. And in the process, I think this divides our society because you have all these people telling all these stories of exclusion and division within our society that may not actually be as big of a deal as they say it is. Right. Yeah, it's, it's tragic. If only there was a way for these organizations to be set up in a temporary fashion such that when they achieve a, a, like a concrete or explicit goal, then they, they dissolve. Otherwise, they, you know they never want to solve the goal <laughs> or, 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 well, actually maybe that would, that wouldn't solve it. The either. concrete explicit goals. Like the, the thing is that you're dealing with stuff that's, that's amorphous enough or out of their control enough. So like you could say, um, if, for example, suppose you're back in the seventies and you're saying when, when gays have achieved equality, right? Like, do you, do you do that by like percentage of gay people who are victimized by violent crime versus other people? And then what do you control for in that regression? Who gets to run that regression? Yeah. And so is this solvable? You may say, get, bring back bureaucrats. Let's say we were all aligned. How do we actually do that? How do we actually shift, uh, you know, a majority of the nonprofit stuff back to the back to control of government? How do we actually do it? Well, we I mean, we just vote in politicians who cut off nonprofits and, and increase the size of the civil service. Like that's just a thing you can do. You just pass legislation. You can absolutely cut so in the, in terms of practical steps to get there, I mean, we could do that tomorrow if we wanted, but you know, there's a, there's a fairly entrenched, uh, system of people thinking like, this is how it works. Yeah. You status quo bias and, and, you know, vested interests and all that good stuff. Right. So in practice, the question of how you actually get from A to B, I don't know because I, you know, I'm not so much a politics blogger, so I haven't looked 
card for examples of cities that managed to pull this off, but there probably are. Yeah, so so basically you just vote for people to do this. Um, my sense is that the first thing you do is investigate funds. You just say, you just, you you increase accountability for the nonprofits. And that's what, that's what people have been doing in San Francisco. And guess what? When they look into how these nonprofits use their funding, there's this famous nonprofit in San Francisco called Todco that is supposed to provide low-income housing, right? And um, the, the steel man case would be that these people as community members better understand how to provide house, low income housing that poor people in San Francisco need than some faceless government bureaucrat in city hall to burda burda burda. When you have to say to burda burda burda, even when during the steel man, you know, it's kind of silly. So what they found in a recent investigation was that over the years, Todco has spent less and less of, even as its budget has grown, Todco has spent less and less of its money on actual housing, more and more of its money on executives the people who work for the nonprofit. The thing about nonprofit is that if you are the executives of the nonprofit who control it and you can pay yourself whatever salary you want, it is not clear what nonprofit means. Like you're paying yourself a salary and you're in control. How are you different than the sole proprietorship of a business who takes money out via equity withdrawals? No, you're just paying yourself a salary. Yeah. And then a lot of these people, these groups have tax exempt status. So it's like a, it's a, you know, this, these are nonprofits in name only to some degree. Well, really to large, I mean, like to a large degree, like these are nonprofits in name only. Nino's. Um, anyway, but then, um, yeah, so, so, so Todd Co turned out to be very politically well connected and they've been sort of slapped on the wrist for violating ethics rules, campaigning for specific politicians. It's clear there's like a reciprocal, uh, you know, sort of deal between them and some, some quote unquote progressive politicians in city hall, which makes me sad because the original progressive movement was about cutting down on local city politics, corruption, and cutting down on this kind of thing. But that's obviously, you know, corrupt when you're doing that. And they've been fine. They've been reprimanded and blah, blah, blah. And it hasn't really stopped them. And they continue to get all this money that they're using increasingly to just pay themselves out. That's bad. Yeah. We don't, we don't want that. And an irony, of course, is that OpenAI is a nonprofit. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a special kind of nonprofit. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. People are uh... the idea that the idea that just because you say you're not for profit, this makes you inherently virtuous is an idea that took hold in America in the 1970s and is sort of one of these boomer legacies that it doesn't really serve us well. Because a a lot of these things, you know, a lot of these organizations actually make pseudo profit in the form of taking out salaries for themselves, right? Or a lot of, sometimes you'll see nonprofit hospitals with a for profit company affiliated with the nonprofit that owns the land under the hospital. So in other words, you're making money from the land appreciation under the hospital, on, on the land under the hospital by building a hospital there. And so like someone's making a lot of money on this. Um, is that really a nonprofit? I don't know. So, so um, that was silly. And then, and then the idea that uh, for profit equals, you know, villainous and nonprofit equals virtuous. Um, even if you, even if you decide to think that the profit motive is going to, is, is villainous, there's, there's all kinds of well-documented ways that for-profit companies will do bad things because it makes them money dumping pollutants in a river, whatever you want. Like there's a million ways there's all pretty well thought about, you know, nonprofits, the, the idea that nonprofits were better and just wouldn't do these things out of the goodness of their heart is just an assumption, not supported by any theory or evidence that we're aware of. Yeah. You know, we, we've seen candidates like Vivek, who we, we had a whole episode, uh, you know, on earlier, and, and this new Ar Argentinian uh, guy, guy uh, who's very aggressive, uh, you know, talk about uh, just dismantling 
significant parts of, of what they call the administrative state. Uh, but I'm surprised I don't hear more about uh, them or other people like them talking about slashing the nonprofit industrial complex. Um, it, it feels like this should be more well-known and bipartisan, right? Because left, lefties want more government you know, power and, and, and sort of, you know, right wing people want less, you know, sort of, of this bullshit. Right. Right. Well, so I don't know anything about what Argentina's nonprofit sector and, you know, and I can't say anything about whether Malay is, is, I mean, yeah, anyway, um, I can't say anything about that, but I can absolutely say about, uh, Vivek, what happened is that he doesn't understand anything about how any of this stuff works and is parachuted in and is talking a bunch of crap on a stage. That is why he doesn't talk about nonprofits at all, because he doesn't even understand this problem. He doesn't even know it exists. He didn't bother to do his homework. He didn't bother to be in this world. He didn't bother to think about this. Even I am like 1% as much in this world as someone who does this for a living, right? I have friends who, who are part of political interest groups who just understand this at a much more detailed and granular, you know, re level and could just rattle off examples. I'll, I'm hanging out with those people tonight. I'll, uh, we could, we could get one of them on the show, actually. Uh, actually, we yeah, we should get Daryl Owens on the show because he'll know about this stuff. Yeah, great. But then Vivek doesn't understand uh, any of this. Like he doesn't know these things. And, you know, he's saying what will get him attention on, you know, Fox News, what will get him attention from Republican base voters. He's not saying anything that has anything to do with how to actually solve these problems because he just sort of like parachuted in and, and started talking crap on a stage. Yeah. I'm, you know, yeah. You you want me to be you want me to be brutally blunt on this podcast, right? always <laughs> yeah n n never okay never, well then that's what i'm saying like he just he, he's a know-nothing guy who has absolutely no you know understanding of what these problems are actually like and is not bothered and doesn't care and that hasn't bothered to talk to anyone who has a real understanding and all he's doing is he's he's just you know he's just gpting it right I, I keep coming back to that that analogy but what he's he's saying the thing that he thinks the audience wants to hear you know so that he can minimize his like republican base loss function and that's all he's doing and, you know, like doing anything else, you know, say, talking about stuff that would actually have a real purpose and point other than getting him attention yep. is not on his radar, is not on his objective function. His objective function is attention for himself. And that is yep. his only objective function. And thus, this is why I think he is a bad politician and that we should ignore him. Yeah. And uh, people should check out our episode for a deeper dive on all, all of Vivek's uh, policies. Um, the... Um, I want to return to an argument we also had in a previous episode, not an argument, but a, a discussion where we talked about uh, why have wages stagnated since 1971? And, and your argument was actually it's not 1971, it's 1973, and it's because of peak oil. And feel free to add or edit anything. But I want to propose a response for your, your consideration, which is well, first, uh, I'll, I'll lay out the argument. Basically, you know, wages are set in the market as a function of the marginal productivity of the worker, right? And so wage stagnation is a function of technological stagnation. And there's the famous chart uh, that talks about, you know, where prices are going up um, and where prices are going down. We've also alluded to that in previous episodes. And workers are concentrated in, in the red sectors where, where prices are are going up and, and productivity growth is is flat or negative. And and one reason why it is, is negative, or maybe a big reason, is kind of this bloat or administrification we've been talking about. So housing regulations and subsidies, education regulations and subsidies, healthcare regulations, subsidies, bloat of government and administrative and compliance functions as, as far as the, the eye can see. And, and this is the, the mentality that some of the politicians we mentioned have, have declared war on. Do you think that is accurate and a big part of it? 
do you think it's accurate and a small part of it, or do you think it's uh, it's not accurate? I think that first of all, if you look at the the divergence of productivity and wages, a lot of that is not real. You've just seen the wages go to the upper level people instead. You've seen wages go to like management and top talent instead of to the average worker. But overall, average wages, if you just throw everything in an average, um, have grown, you know, not there's been like some amount that opened since 2000, but like really there's not that big of a gap. And they've really, uh, the, the wage productivity divergence that you hear about is almost entirely just inequality of wages. So, so that's one thing. The other thing is the productivity slowdown, which is real. The thing is that this happened worldwide. And maybe, you know, certainly Japan has not had this shift to nonprofits we've had. Certainly, um, much of Europe has not had this shift to nonprofits that we've had. Uh, they've maintained large administrative states, blah, blah, blah. Um, but they didn't have the shift to nonprofits. We haven't, you know, and, and then you have, you know, um, countries that are more... You, you had like Hong Kong, which was not really country, but which was sort of its own little, you know, administrative unit that was incredibly libertarian. And you had productivity slowdown there too. Of course, maybe it's just small. Also that productivity slowdown is based on exporting to places that had a slowdown. I don't know. It's really hard because everything's connected in the global economy, but um, this productivity slowdown is global. And that suggests that American domestic political factors are not the main driving factor. And you can say, okay, well, everybody copies America. Maybe, but it takes them 20 years to copy America. So the fact that like it all happened at the same time, the productivity slowdown is pretty simultaneous across the globe, uh, suggests that it's something that happened pretty, you know, at the same time, like across the whole globe. And there's really only two good candidates for that, one of which is oil, the other of which is a change in the monetary system, international financing system, the end of Bretton Woods. And so you get people who argue that that was the big change that reduced productivity. Um, they have a real uphill battle with, uh, you know, with that argument because the role of the U S dollar didn't really change that much after the end of Bretton Woods. And the fact that we nominally had gold involved in some way that we didn't afterwards was like, not that important to how people actually financed anything. And, um, and so that's, they have a real uphill climb, but really the only other big global thing that happened around that time was the oil shock. Um, so that's why I think it's the oil shock, <laughs> but, uh, but this idea that the, 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 the story of the grifting nonprofits was a slow build thing in America. It, um, you know, if you go to like 1982, right, which is like almost, let's say you go a decade after, after the, the shocks, right? You're in 1982, you still had a fairly big administrative state. You hadn't cut a lot of it even a decade later, but productivity had already like slowed to a crawl. So it wasn't like nonprofit, the whole nonprofit sector was this, this switch that we flipped on and off. Oil was. Um, nonprofits were not. It was sort of this corrosive thing that built over time. That said, has this subtracted from productivity at all? I think you'd find that it has. Um, and I think that when you look at the excess cost of certain things in America, you'll find that the, the shift to nonprofits has really increased these in some cases. But I think that interestingly, those cases are not necessarily the, uh, the top line cases. So for example, in healthcare, you have some nonprofits in healthcare, but they, they pretty much just do healthcare. These aren't like, you know, it wasn't like we were going to have government hospitals. We didn't have an NHS. We didn't have like Britain, right? We didn't have the government doing this. And then we outsourced it to like, you know, some, some nonprofit hospitals. That didn't happen. Um, instead, we just, you have for-profit hospitals and nonprofit hospitals, and they're about equally as good as each other. Um, and the nonprofit hospitals may be fake nonprofits. It's not clear. 
um, but they're doing this, this healthcare um, thing. They still compete in a competitive marketplace. Like there's no government thing that says you must go to a nonprofit hospital when you're sick. No, you can go to a for-profit hospital. No one's stopping you, right? So the, the competitive market dynamics are still in place. I think the reason those are structured as nonprofits are different. You know, like our government isn't shoveling money at nonprofit hospitals. Um, we do, there are some grifting nonprofits in the public health sector uh, that, you know, and that probably impaired our response to COVID because we had outsourced a lot of those functions. But then but those are some pretty specialized, like, you know, public health, some pretty specialized sectors. I think that overall, the things that have increased in price, you know, the healthcare. So with college education, there is some of this, I think, because, um, but it's, it's not quite in the way that you think. Nonprofit schools have always been better than for-profit schools. For-profit schools have always sucked. Why is that? Well, we don't know. But the, the, the most likely reason is because when you buy a college education, you don't actually know what you're getting until 20 years later. Right. It's very hard to establish the reputational effects that you need for a good marketplace. Like you, you don't know who's good, right? So, so people think Harvard is good because it has this reputation that built up over hundreds of years, right? Or Stanford, that reputation that built up over hundreds, some odd years. That's a relatively new school. Stony Brook's one of the newest schools and that was built, you know, relatively recently, but still many decades old. You had all these for-profits pop up in the uh, like 2000s. How about K through 12 nonprofit versus for-profit? Um, well, you still have charter schools and some charter schools have performed better than other schools. Um, so then so outsourcing to a nonprofit in that case um, has been somewhat effective, but if we rolled it out at the national level, Charter schools might turn into giant grifting operations. We don't know. Uh, we just know that like when we made them be extremely competitive and prove themselves and blah, 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 they did kind of well. But then if we, uh, if we, if we institutionalized them and made them not no longer accountable, maybe they wouldn't do so well. So, um, but, but I would say it's complicated. The answer to that is it's complicated. I don't think that the like nonprofits are the answer to the question of what happened in the early seventies to decelerate our economy. Definitely not. But I do think that they are providing a drag in many sectors. And one of those big sectors is housing, which is actually, so housing has increased by less than income. Housing is actually cheaper, cheaper slightly on average throughout America than it used to be. Not much, but a little bit cheaper. Yeah. That's a weird thing people don't know because like what changed is that like people like you and me decided that living in a, in a, you know, leafy suburb was actually hell and that we wanted to live in like the middle of downtowns. Uh, you know, in the middle of a thriving, bustling big city for which space is very limited, right? So that's what really happened. And so when you see people talking about the housing crisis, it's either people like you and me who are gentrifiers who just decided that living in the big city was cool now instead of suburbs or or people who were living there before and then got sort of pressured by rent hikes, you know, first wave gentrifiers being gentrified by second wave gentrifiers. So that's who's complaining about housing problems Housing is a problem, but at the national level, it hasn't helped the, the things that have really increased much are like healthcare, education, and childcare. Those are really the um, healthcare, education, and childcare, the big ticket services are the things that cost much more than before. I think you, in some special cases, you can look at nonprofits being part of that problem, but I don't think nonprofits are the main problem there. My, my sense on the K through 12 education front is that we are deeply uncomfortable with educational uh, inequality or, or inequity, and thus we constrain the amount of innovation that can happen because it would first happen among the rich kids 
And so the theory is that the rich kids would get some better solutions if it was easier to build for them. And then those gains in education innovation would trickle down uh, to sort of the masses. Is that your read as to why we don't have more innovation in, edu in education because we are concerned about uh, an education inequality? And is, your, is that your read that if we had more innovation, it would happen that way where first it would you know, start with the, the richer populations and then uh, trickle down? Or, or what do you think? No. So uh, absolutely not. Um, one of the most consistent findings in education research is that there's not a hell of a lot you can do to make the top kids do better. Top kids are, are mostly topped out. Um, and the reason is they already have an amazing technology that Matt, that, that throws all these resources and, and, and is highly personalized and maximizes education for them. They have live in tutors from when they're born. They're called parents yeah. and the poor kids don't have parents that can help them that way because the poor kids, parents have to work or, you know, or like are on drugs and that's why they're poor in the first place or are, you know, just like single and don't have time to spend with the kids et cetera, et cetera, or just don't come from a culture of education, all these things, right? All these reasons why it sucks to be poor. Um, it's all the real gains are for poor kids. When we look at like educational improvements, it's all lifting up the bottom instead of accelerating the top. Accelerating the top, you give them a freaking calculus book, let them read some calculus, you know? I read calculus when I was like a high school sophomore or something like that, and just taught it to myself. And I was just like, okay, by the time I got to calculus class, I was like, okay, it's time to sleep. And so like, I, I of course, uh, should have gone on and, and taught myself higher math at the time. But then in my later high school, I became obsessed with the idea that I needed to, um, to have lots of fun instead of, uh, you know, going at life too fast. But anyway, um, that's another story. The story is that for, for uh, poor kids or kids who don't do as well, there's huge opportunities for improvement. So when you look at America's performance on international tests, um, our, our rich kids will beat rich kids from other countries, from like China, right? Um, and if you break it down by race, our Asian kids will beat kids from China easily. Like, we'll like Asian Americans clobber Chinese people on average, even from the top cities, like the superstar cities in China where all the smart people live. Like, no, our Asian Americans will just clobber them. Or like, um, actually, well, I mean, white Americans beat Europeans on all these tests. Like, so um, then what, what, you, what you're actually having, because, because these people have money uh, and parents, they have parents to teach them. Um, of course, it's, it's poor white kids don't, right? I, but, but, you know, even, even, one, even taking into account the existence of poor white kids, white Americans will cream Europeans on these tests and uh, absolutely destroy them and so but the but the point is that we have these these poor white kids and then you have black kids hispanic kids whatever when where you have a lot higher rates of poverty we have a lot lower rates of access right we have and then when when we look at things like charter schools that actually improve things all the gains are for like poor black kids that's where the gains are going that's where educational innovation works and that's if you look at international test performance that's where we need the innovation we are a country that it's actually pretty good at education for most people and then absolutely terrible for the people at the bottom. We understand how to accelerate people at the top. We do not understand as much how to remediate people at the bottom other than like giving them a tutor. Um, so that's why we have, have you read The Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson? No, I haven't read it. Yeah. So The Diamond Age, uh, basically it's an AI, it's sci-fi about an AI tutor. So this, uh, you know, poor girl um, 
forget even where she is, Hong Kong or something. Anyway, she's, um, uh, she gets this, uh, she, you know, I think her parents are dead or something. And she gets this, this like AI tutor on this like flexible screen, you know, she can roll it up and like, it's a little personal tutor and it, it like teaches her to be this tech worker essentially. And it's this idea that uh, tutors, so tutors are the most amazing technology. That's why parents are so important because they just spend one or one time because so, so tutoring is what works. Uh, I did see a recent paper showing that tutoring worked, you know, less for one, one paper, but in general, tutoring is the best thing you can do. And, um, and so AI may be able to solve this. So, but it will be for poor kids, you know, it, it will be an AI tutor for the people who are least able to afford an AI tutor. So we'll need the government to buy poor kids, AI tutors. That's going to need to happen because these people can't afford it themselves. Right. And charity's not going to do it. Who else is going to buy the, the, you know, like magic diamond age, Neil Stevenson tutor for these kids. Um, that's what it's going to need to be. Maybe let's wrap on, uh, on that in inspiring, uh, inspiring note. Cause we're, we're, we're at the hour, but, uh, these were you know, good pieces on uh, the politicization of science and uh, bring back uh, bureaucracy. Uh, next next week we'll do uh, maybe uh, appropriately for you know near end of year uh, podcast. Uh, we'll review your kind of three year reflection on uh, on no opinion, some of the big themes that have emerged, and it'll kind of be like a summary for some of the major topics we've discussed in this podcast. All right, looking forward to it. Awesome, always a pleasure. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.